Good morning. If you would please turn to Matthew chapter 13. If you weren't in the first hour, I just want to say again how grateful I am to have the opportunity to be with you. As uh, I said before that first service, uh, I, uh, this first worship setting I've been in with your church, but I feel at home. I'm grateful for that. Thankful for our partnership as churches and Expositor Seminary and just uh, the like-mindedness that is an encouragement to our souls in these days where you, sometimes you struggle to find like-mindedness. So very grateful for your pastor, my friend, and grateful for all the men who, who are uh, co-laborers with him in the work here. I give the Lord thanks for what he's done and what he's doing and what he's going to do in the life of this congregation. Uh, in our time now, I want us to look at verses 31 through 35, Matthew 13, and we'll read beginning with verse 31. The Word of God says this, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three seta of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he was not speaking to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, it is amazing to us, even as my friend prayed a moment ago, that we belong to you, that we actually belong to the glorious grace and the unimaginable riches that are spoken of in these verses. Uh, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven have been given to us, just as they were to those first disciples. Uh, hidden things, now revealed, you have brought us into the knowledge of those things. And because we belong to you and because you have saved us in your Son, we are secure in your hand and our destiny is settled. And we have a purpose on this earth that goes beyond anything we knew before we knew you. And in that we rejoice. May you be at work in this next hour as we look into your word. You tell us that your word is a, a sword. It, it goes deep into us even exposing the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. It's a mirror. We look into it and we see ourselves in a way that calls for our ongoing growth. May you do everything in this next hour that you do with your word, encouraging us, fortifying us, but also convicting us, changing us. And we will be very careful to give you thanks for what you alone can do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you happen to not be here yesterday, I just want to say again that when you come to Matthew chapter 13, you come to a major shift 
in the teaching ministry of Jesus. Uh, verse 3 notes that. The disciples' question in verse 10 notes that. Uh, one of the verses we just read, verse 34, notes that. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he was not speaking to them without a parable. Our Lord came initially preaching in very straightforward terms, and there were signs that accompanied his, his preaching so that his identity should have been unmistakable. But in fact, everywhere he went, he met with sinful, stubborn unbelief. And so in chapter 13 of Matthew and, and throughout the rest of the book of Matthew, there's this shift where now Jesus, when teaching publicly, teaches in a, in a, in a way that communicates truth, but in a veiled form. It's a judgment from God. It's saying, if you won't hear the truth in clear and straightforward terms, then let me give you the truth in terms you can't understand. And so Jesus was teaching publicly with parables, but he was only giving the explanations for these parables to his disciples in private. So, so judgment is on display. But the fact that he's giving his disciples the explanations means that grace is also on display. And what our Lord is doing in, the, in Matthew 13 is he's giving this series of kingdom parables in which the mysteries of the kingdom are being unveiled. Now, as you know, a mystery is something once hidden, or we knew in, in a veiled form. Now it's fully revealed. Well, read the Old Testament, and you can see now with Christian eyes the first coming and the second coming of Christ. But before his coming, that was understood in a very veiled sort of way. It was confusing. You have these verses in the Old Testament that speak of the triumph of the king. You have these verses in the Old Testament that speak of a suffering servant. How do you put this together? And our Lord's coming brought that to light. As he explains, he came the first time to save, he's coming the next time to judge. And the question is, what is going to happen during the intervening age? And these parables unveil what his people can expect between the times of his first coming and his second coming. When he makes use of parables and other forms of illustrative teaching, what he's doing is he's taking from one world of reality to illuminate another world of reality. He takes from the material to the spiritual, from the temporal to the eternal, from the seen to the unseen, from what was well-known to people in their world to what was not well-known, or in some cases unknown to people. Once his disciples understood what he was doing, then the meanings of the parables would be more discernible. As I said, the crowds didn't receive explanations, but the disciples were receiving explanations. And before long, certainly they would have caught on to what Jesus was doing with these word pictures. I bring that up because the two parables we come to now in verses 31 to 35, you'll notice, don't receive any explanation. And there's no record of Jesus ever explaining these two parables to his disciples, though in Mark chapter 4 it says he was explaining all of them to his disciples. So he may have explained these as well, but we don't have the explanation. <laughs> so we come to these verses and we have to ask, what did Jesus mean? Because he doesn't tell us what he meant. But when you read these two parables in context, I think they are easily understood. Again, following his way of teaching through this section Remembering the context of what he's talking about, I think these are able to be discerned. We're going to deal with both of these parables together 
because they are actually communicating the same message, but just from a different vantage point. Very quickly, again, for, for someone who wasn't here yesterday or in the first hour, let me just remind us what we've seen so far in the parables that lead up to this one. We have seen that the word of the kingdom will not always be believed. As we carry out our work in this world until Jesus returns, the, the preaching, the teaching of the word of God is going to meet with four kinds of soils. Only one of those represents salvation. So we need to be mindful of that and expect that. That in some cases the word is just going to bounce off people. In other cases it's going to take very shallow root and eventually what's going to be revealed is it was never a, a saving kind of rootedness in the heart as they fall away. Others are, are going to um, be overcome by the worries, the anxieties, and the ambitions of this world, and they will demonstrate eventually that they were not truly saved. But then you have good soil, good by the grace of God, good by the work of the Spirit of God, in which the Word of God will take root, and good fruit will be the result. And then in the, in the parable, just prior to this one, the parable of the tares, what we learn is that the kingdom, in its spiritual sense, the work of the kingdom, the preaching of the Word of the kingdom, as the, as the sons of the kingdom are being gathered in through that preaching, they're going to live side by side with the sons of the evil one until Jesus returns. So we, we have to be ready. We have to expect we're going to live in a world full of evil, in a world full of evil people. And it's going to remain like that until Jesus himself returns and ushers in his kingdom. And in that day, his holy angels will be the agents by which he makes this great separation, they will be the reapers. And the sons of the evil one will go into everlasting damnation, and the sons of the kingdom will shine like the sun of the kingdom of their father for forever. But now these two parables introduce us to something additional, very needful for us. Everything Jesus is saying is meant to equip us. As I said yesterday, he, God equips his servants in in two ways, really. He gives us the provisions we need to serve Him. He has saved us, given us His Spirit, given us His Word, gifted us for ministry. But He also equips us with perspective. He wants us to live our lives with a clear-eyed view of what He has done and what He is doing, what He's going to do, where it's all headed. This is important. For us to function properly in the present, we have to have a set of eternal eyes. We have to understand what our God has revealed. And so what he wants us to know from these two parables is that the kingdom, in its spiritual sense, will grow until the time that Messiah returns. And that kingdom will influence the world until the time when Messiah returns. And the kingdom will ultimately triumph when it's all over. God's decrees will not be thwarted. What he has determined to do will be done. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Savior. Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The day is coming when every wrong will be righted and Jesus will rule the earth and we will reign with him. These two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, remind us of these things. 
very simple outline uh, for this session. We're going to talk about two things, the parables examined and then the parables applied. So we're just going to take note of the parables and we're going to think about their application. We begin with the parable of the mustard seed. Look at what our Lord said, verse 31. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is the smallest of all seeds. But when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, at this point, Jesus has said two things that biblical critics love to seize upon. Two things that really bother them, and I would just say they should not bother you at all, but they bother the critics of the Bible. Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. They say, aha, there's an error in the Bible, because there are seeds smaller than the mustard seed. And, of course, what they ignore is the context. What Jesus is talking about are those seeds in Palestine sown for the purpose of consumption, for food. He was not saying the smallest of all the seeds in the whole world. He's saying the smallest of the seeds sown in the fields for food. And actually, he makes that plain when he makes reference in verse 32 to the garden plants. This is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree. So his comparison is in the context of garden plants. In Palestine at that time, that's what he's talking about. The second thing they seize on is when he says it becomes a tree. They go, this is not true. The mustard plant does not become a tree. And it's not sturdy enough, they say, to have birds of the air nest in its branches. But again, if you, if you hear our Lord in context... He's saying that in comparison with the plants in the field, by comparison, it is a tree. It's very large compared to the other plants. Leon Morris, commenting on on this, says, Dendron occurs in Matthew in 12 of its 25 occurrences. It is quite a Matthean word. It signifies a tree over against smaller growths. He goes on to say the point of the parable is that this very little seed grows into a sizable plant, one larger than all the plants of the garden. And indeed, in its mature state, becomes a tree. It can grow to a height of 8 to 12 feet. And other commentators have noted that during certain seasons, its branches actually become quite rigid and would support the birds nesting. But I would also remind us that when our Lord was speaking and teaching His words are infallible. They are perfect. But he's speaking in ways common to people. The other day, I got into my truck. I was driving somewhere. And I look over on the passenger seat, and there's this frog. It's a tiny frog. And it's making me uncomfortable. It's looking at me. And I I don't know. Is it going to jump? What's it going to do? It went with me all the way to the golf course. In fact, he was set free at the golf course in the parking lot. But before I opened the door and got him out, I took a picture 
and I sent it to my granddaughters. And I said, look at this, this tiniest little frog that was in my truck. Now, my granddaughters reading that would not have thought granddad just claimed he saw the smallest frog in the whole world. No, they understand how we speak at times, even using hyperbole to emphasize something. This is the tiniest little thing we might say. And no one is, is holding our feet to the fire as though we're making some scientific statement. We are illustrating something. And so when Jesus is talking about the mustard seed and the, the plant, he's not giving a scientific talk about mustard plants. And what he's communicating is actually quite clear, and it's, it's impossible to miss that the mustard plant begins in, with, with small beginnings, but it eventually becomes very large. And he wants to talk about how that compares to the kingdom of heaven. That's the point. Then he gives another parable. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three seta of flour until it was all leavened. That's the parable. Jesus tells of a woman who puts zume, fermented dough, into three measures. Seta here is saton, a Hebrew dry measure Three of these would have added up to about 50 pounds, would have produced enough bread to feed about 100 people. The point is she puts this fermented dough into the mix and the entire thing is leavened. Hides it there in the sense of puts it into and it's all leavened. Craig Bloomberg comments, so too the tiny amounts of yeast a bread maker mixes into a large batch of dough causes the whole loaf to rise. Mixed is literally hidden, but the expression is probably just a graphic description of the baking process and not to be allegorized, and I agree with him. So these are the two parables that we have. Now here's the question. How do we apply these? This is, this is one instance where our Lord did not give us the explanation. How are we meant to understand them? The first way we understand it is he's talking about the growth of the kingdom. When you talk about the mustard plant, that's the point. The word of the kingdom is going to lead to the growth of the ingathering of the children of God all over the world. The salvation of sinners, the spiritual formation of the family of God, the church is going to grow throughout the world. Just as a mustard seed is very small, but, but produces something very large in comparison with everything else in the garden. So you have the small beginnings of what you see with our Lord and his disciples, what he entrusts to them, what he's going to command them to do. Very small beginnings, but in the end, it's going to produce something very large. This will happen because of the authority of Jesus. Our Lord said to his disciples, by extension to us in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You're going to go to the ends of the earth with what you know, and I'm going to be with you every step of the way until this age is done. 
Daniel 7, 14 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages. This is Old Testament, but it's anticipating what you and I are living in right now, where it's all going to end up, where it's all headed. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That speaks of the Messiah. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So our Lord, anticipating what will be at the end of the tribulation period, anticipates the word of the kingdom having gone throughout the earth before he returns to the earth. It's going to grow throughout the world. And as it grows throughout the world, it's going to influence wherever it goes. That's the purpose of the parable of the leaven. That wherever the gospel goes and grows, which means it's taking root, you have change that occurs. Transformation happens. Changes people. Changes places. Changes families. Can change communities. Can change nations. D.A. Carson commented, if there's a distinction between this parable and the last one, it is that the mustard seed suggests extensive growth and the yeast intensive transformation. The yeast doesn't grow, it permeates. And its inevitable effect, despite the small quantity used, recalls Jesus' words in chapter 5, verse 13. In both parables, it is clear that at present, the kingdom of heaven operates not apocalyptically, but quietly and from small beginnings. So as the gospel spreads, as the spiritual kingdom of God grows, the world will be influenced by that advancement. What is the purpose of the birds nesting in the branches? Well, for people who knew the Old Testament, it's a clear comment about the blessings of the kingdom. Wherever it grows, wherever it influences, it brings blessing. You find very similar statements to this in the Old Testament. When talking about the strength of a kingdom or the blessings of a kingdom, the strength of Nebuchadnezzar was described this way. Daniel 4.10, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. It, its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. The 20th verse of the same chapter, we read, The tree you saw, Daniel giving the explanation for the vision, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and which food was for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. So the, so the greatness 
of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the strength of his kingdom pictured in this sort of way, a, a very large tree, very tall, and it provides blessing, shade for the beasts and a place for the birds to make their nests. The former strength of Assyria is spoken of in this way in, in a warning to Egypt. In Ezekiel 31, verse 3, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water and its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. Again, picturing the strength of Assyria in this tall tree, and its branches provide blessing. And so when our Lord speaks of this mustard plant, it's not just the growth of the kingdom and the influence of the kingdom, but the blessings that abide wherever it takes root. John MacArthur comments, when Christians live in obedience to the Lord, they are a blessing to those around them. Individual believers become the source of benediction to nations. And with all their faults, those nations of the world who have been so influenced and who have recognized God's sovereignty and have sought to build their laws and standards of living on His Word have proved a blessing to the rest of the world. In economic, legal, cultural, and social ways, as well as spiritual and moral. Let me just stop there in the midst of his quote and say, isn't that what makes our own nation tragic right now? How we have experienced the blessings of the influence of Christianity and how that has been exported in past days in the form of blessings to the earth. But as we are experiencing the judgment of God, Romans chapter 1, upon our land, what we export now is immorality. What we export now is filth. MacArthur goes on to say, it is from the teachings of Scripture through Christian witness that high standards of education, justice, the dignity of women, the rights of children, prison reform, and countless other social benefits have come. Whenever the gospel of the kingdom of God is faithfully preached and practiced, all the world benefits... Jesus' point is that in spite of great opposition, represented by the three bad soils and the tares, his kingdom will start small and spread in power and influence to become victorious. The United States is not the new Israel. We're wrong. Take Second Chronicles 7.14 and apply it to us as if we're Israel. But I will tell you this from the Word of God, Proverbs 14, 34, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, any nation that has ever existed. Where there is righteousness, there's blessing. Where there's sin, there's ruin. So these two parables teach about the growth of the kingdom, the influence of the kingdom, the blessings of the kingdom. They also teach about the triumph of the kingdom. Because the ultimate triumph is seen in the fact that both parables end with success. The mustard plant grows large. The leaven leavens the whole lump. 
both succeed. And as we saw in the first hour, and we'll see in the second hour, the end of all that we're a part of right this moment will be seen, verse 43, when the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. The ultimate triumph of the kingdom is not in doubt. So that, I want you to reflect for a moment on the faithfulness of the word of Christ. By the way, the faithfulness of the word of God. I don't know if you hear it often, but I hear it too often, and it's sad to me when people try to pit Paul against Jesus or to talk about homosexuality as if Jesus had no commentary on it, so therefore it is to be accepted by us because Jesus didn't condemn it. First of all, that ignores what he taught about marriage, but in addition, what we miss is the fact that Genesis 1-1 is the word of Jesus because Jesus is God Almighty in human flesh right this moment. But reflect on the faithfulness of the Word of God, the Word of Christ. When you remember that here, as he speaks this message, you have a carpenter's son from the standpoint of how people saw him. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. They they, they marveled at him in the midst of a synagogue because how, how does this man have this wisdom? How does he say what he says? We know his family. So he's a carpenter's son. And he is joined by a ragtag group of followers. Common men, tax collectors, fishermen, zealots, trying to lead some sort of hopeless revolution. These are the men who have been saved by Christ and now follow Christ. Not many mighty, not many noble. And he's opposed by the religious leaders of the, the nation, Israel, subjugated to Roman authority, and that nation in ultimate authority is characterized by pagan religion that carries with it the authority of the entire nation. In other words, what I'm saying to you is, what were the odds that what he says here would come true? A carpenter's son with ragtag followers opposed by his own people And the nation in charge of the world, Rome, has a religious system that would stand in complete opposition to Jesus and would have have no interest in him, but anything that would arise, it would seemingly seek to squash. What are the odds it's going to go to the whole world? But I want to ask you, was he right? Has it happened? It has, hasn't it? It's happened. Just as he said that it would. How do I know that I'm in the truth? Well, I happen to believe that the Bible is a self-authenticating book. No one believes the Bible until the Spirit of God grants them faith. So the Bible rings true to the hearts of those people whom the Lord saves. That's how you explain the fact that you really do believe the Bible. But we know there are good reasons to believe the Bible... Beyond that self-authentication, I've told my children as they were growing up, if I had no other reason to believe that the Bible is true, it absolutely nails the human condition. Who else in the world says about us what the Bible says about us? 
And who else in the world says about salvation what the Bible says about salvation? Every other system is some form of, some form of works righteousness, but the Bible says no, only God saves sinners. And it's by grace alone and by faith alone and in Christ alone. You are hopelessly ruined. Is that what the world says about itself? So if I had no other reason to believe the Bible, it would be it nails us in opposition to every form of human wisdom. It says about men what men won't say about themselves. But here's another reason. Jesus said that this mustard seed was going to grow into a tree. And he said like leaven mixed into dough, it's going to permeate wherever it goes. And like trees nesting in the branches of a mustard plant, it's going to bring blessing wherever it travels. And when he spoke those words, there was zero chance it would happen from a human point of view. And here we are in a room full of people miles away from where he spoke those words. And the gospel has traveled to the ends of the earth just like Jesus said it would happen. In other words, the kingdom advances just like Jesus said it would. I don't have this in my notes, but I was thinking about this. And I want to read this to you. That's why I'm bringing up my phone. You know who John Lennon was? Remember the band, the Beatles? Here's what he said at one point. He actually later said he regretted saying this, but he didn't retract it in its entirety. Here's what he said. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I know that I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. Well, Jesus was more than all right, but we are thick and ordinary. He got that part right. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. Of course, he goes on to say his, his view of God is there's not just one thing that is God, etc., etc. So this is a man who declared the death of Christianity. He's not alone, is he? For 2,000 years, Christianity's been attacked. For 2,000 years, the Bible has been attacked. For 2,000 years, the haters of Christ and his church have mocked the Christian faith and predicted the snuffing out of the Christian faith, have attempted the snuffing out of the Christian faith, and yet the kingdom advances. Just like Jesus said, it would. Linen is gone, but Christianity still exists. The faithfulness of all the words of Jesus point to the need for everything he says we need. If he's right about the growth of the kingdom, then listen to him when he says, you need a Savior. And listen to him when he says that the word of God is true. Heaven and earth will pass away before these words will pass away. So that you trust in him for salvation and you follow him. As he goes on saving you, he has saved you, but he is saving you in the terms of progressive sanctification, and one day will deliver you before his own presence, spotless and without blame, because he bought you with his blood. Know that. Be encouraged by that. Our Lord was not giving these men a hopeless picture. He's telling them, until I come again, the word of God will triumph.
despite all opposition. And my prayer for us is that we will live and breathe and have our being and have our service in the Lord's church in that same spirit of optimism. Yes, we're living side by side with evil, but we're not on the winning side, we're on the side that is won. And we are a part of the outworking of the decrees of God that will mean not one of the sheep for whom Jesus died will be lost. Not one. What a privilege. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, <clears throat> thank you, Lord, <clears throat> for your holy word and for these parables that infallibly communicate to your people what we can expect. What your people could expect from the time your son ascended to your right hand until the time when he will return to this earth. He is coming. We know that. And we long for his coming. So would you strengthen us, Holy Father, to be faithful to what he's called us to until we meet him face to face, either absent from the body or present in it when he returns to the earth. Lord, strengthen us to be faithful in these days in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.